He suck his finger in the end of your what? Howdy, everyone. Pull up a chair, kick up your boots, and have a listen as you sip on a Saspa, so, uh, a Sodi Pop. It's Support Your Local Podcast, the show that breaks down the 1969 Western comedy classic Support Your Local Sheriff, scene by scene. I'm your host, Robert T. Smith, coming to you near beautiful Tombstone. Yes, that one. As we join our movie today, we are looking at Chapter 1, Gold Diggers. But before we jump into our chapter, let's set the scene a little bit. Let's take a look at how this movie came to be and what kind of world it was coming into. For that, let's start with a segment I like to call, It Came in 69. That gun had gone off and it blowed right up in my face. Not, it wouldn't have done my finger a hell of a lot of good either, would it? So, it's 1969. Richard Nixon has become the President of the United States. I'm sure that he's going to have a long, bright future ahead of him, so we'll keep an eye out for that. During his first uh, inaugural address, Nixon proclaimed that Americans cannot learn from one another until we stop shouting at one another. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America. A few days later in Paris, the U.S. and North Vietnamese peace talks begins. The Super Bowl III takes place at the Orange Bowl. Did I say Super Bowl? I'm sorry. The big game. I don't want to be sued. The big game, number three, takes place at the Orange Bowl in Miami, uh, where the New York Jets defeat the Baltimore Colts 16-7. John Lennon and Yoko Ono cause controversy when the nude photo of themselves for their album, Two Virgins, is deemed pornographic in New Jersey. Police are forced to confiscate all the copies of the album they could find, and that is estimated at around 30,000 copies. In a completely unrelated event, approximately 60,000 eardrums were also saved that day. Speaking of Lennon, a few weeks later, the Beatles give their last public performance on the roof of Apple Records. The band has not been on tour since 1966, but with their upcoming album Let It Be due to come out the next year, they decided on an impromptu concert. When torn between locations to make it happen, Lennon reportedly said to just do it up on the roof. Onlookers were predominantly people just on their lunch breaks. After several songs, the concert is ultimately broken up by the police. And that's where the world was in 1969 when the movie was released. But what about the world that the movie takes place in? We don't actually have a definitive date of when this occurs, but from a couple hints in the movie and the history of Colorado, not to mention to make this entire bit work, let's just say it's 1869. The investment bank, Goldman Sachs, is founded in New York. St. Ignatius College Prep in Chicago is founded and construction on the school's main building began. It is one of only five buildings that survived the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Gregory Rasputin, the Russian mystic, was born. Scotland's oldest professional football team, Kilmarock FC, is founded. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is the first woman to testify before the United States Congress. And that has been a brief look into what came in 69. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Robert T. Smith, host of Support Your Local Podcast. I want to take a moment to remind you to hit that fast forward button. That is, unless you want to hear about something good being done. 
Anyone who knows me knows that I love bowling. In 2016, I founded the Smith Family Bowling Scholarship Foundation, intended to honor my father's hard work and dedication to community service and award scholarships to youth bowlers throughout the nation. To date, we've awarded well over $15,000 in scholarships. If you are a bowler, know a bowler, have ever seen a bowler, or heard about anyone who has ever seen a video of a bowler, I'd love for you to help promote the SFBSF and its mission. Please go to sfbsf.com and see what we're all about. While you're there, please consider hitting that donate button and helping us make a brighter future for our youth. Again, that's sfbsf.com. Thank you for your time. And we're back. Welcome back to Support Your Local Podcast. As our first chapter starts, we're greeted with the iconic MGM Lion Roar opening, then a United Artists production screen. MGM, at this time, famous for bringing us such classics as The Wizard of Oz. This movie was made by the Artists Union as a way to keep many of the writers, actors, production crew working. James Garner was actually the only person involved with the movie who made more than scale. Uh, for those that aren't aware of the movie business, scale is the minimum wage, basically, that you can pay an actor and, and still meet the union requirements. The film's title is a parody of a bumper sticker popular around the time uh, saying, Support Your Local Police. It was part of the law and order movement led by such politicians as Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George Wallace. And truth be told, I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but I always catch it whenever I can. I was scrolling through Pluto TV one night and I saw that it was on. And I usually watch TV at night when my wife goes to sleep. So I have the closed captioning on. And the first caption that comes up is Rock of Ages plays. And obviously they're talking about the hymn being played on the accordion. That'll come up in a few seconds. But with the volume off, I must admit, I thought maybe, just maybe, we'd get a Def Leppard riff. But alas, it was not. Uh, we get the beginning guitar strums of a song we'll hear throughout the movie. And as the screen fades out of black, we see six men carrying a wooden casket with a funeral procession. An off-screen accordion starts playing the chords of the actual Rock of Ages. We pull back and see the beginnings of what we'll soon know as Calendar, Colorado. It's about ten pop-up tents and shanties and what appears to be two trails crisscrossing through at a, a crossroads. We see where the music is coming from as we're shown a man sitting on his ass. One of our town founders begins his eulogy over the coffin of who we soon find out to be Millard Frymore. The eulogy is given, and one of the first lines that the man says is, we're here to honor Millard Frymore, or whatever his name really was. And it makes you wonder what exactly happened in the two days that he had been there since writing in a town that would lead them to believe that he had a past that he was hiding from. Uh, perhaps, you know, in today's day and age, they would make a prequel just on Millard Frymore and we'd find out a little bit more about him. But also curious as to what disease Millard actually died from, taking their hats off in prayer. And it's more than likely it's for their own health that they're praying for and not necessarily for Millard, who they only knew for a couple days. We see the first glimpses of our real heroes of the movie, the Doggos as they try to see what they can do to possibly revive Millard by jumping into his grave. Uh, who knows? If they hadn't have shooed away the, the dogs, perhaps Millard would be alive here today as an immortal. You know, better movie. Uh, I'll say it. As we see the dogs throughout the movie, we'll see them more as harbingers of events 
They're kind of the silver surfer to support your local sheriff's Galactus. They are potentially the viewer's entrance into the movie. So kind of like C-3PO and R2-D2 in Star Wars. They're a gateway of us seeing what's going on in the movie. I did a little bit of looking to kind of narrow down what potentially killed Millard. And the only thing that was around in that time frame was uh, tuberculosis was obviously on the rise. And a lot of people had already started to move out west to the dry climate to try to counteract that. Um, but other than that, there wasn't necessarily a plague per se that was hitting that area around that time. So perhaps Millard had just died. He was, uh, we don't actually get to see Millard again, perhaps in the prequel, we will get to see that a little bit better, but um, we don't physically see Millard. So we don't know if he was an older gentleman, if he was sickly to start with, perhaps he just died of pneumonia or something. But yeah, we're, we're a little a little blank as to what caused the death of Millard Frymore. As the movie progresses, we see a young lady played by Joan Hackett, and she removes her veil for a better look at the grave of Mr. Frymore, and we see her eyes grow wide as she discovers that there was gold sitting inside the grave, or at least was visible from where she was standing around the grave. And it made me wonder, who dug this grave for Millard, and why did they not notice the gold first? You would think that if they were physically standing in the hole of this grave, they would be able to see whatever it is that caught uh, Joan Hackett's eye in regards to the gold. But alas, she is not the only person who uh, notices the gold. As she tries to get the attention of the person around her, uh, the other founding members' eyes light up with the, the glitter of gold, and soon the entire procession's jumping into the grave, battling and fighting to be the first one to get their hands on it. Joan Hackett, worried about the rule of finders keepers, losers weepers, she makes sure to grab a shovel and starts wailing away, both physically with the shovel and vocally as she cries out about the townsfolk taking her gold. So this opening scene of a group of townsfolk during a funeral service discovering gold is something that is very similar to Paint Your Wagon, which was also released in 1969. Uh, during the opening scene there, Clint Eastwood's brother was killed while moving to California during the gold rush. And during his burial service, gold was spotted in the grave by the other miners. Uh, before Lee Marvin can finish his prayer, his body's pulled out of the grave and everybody jumps in to try to stake their claim. So obviously a little bit different as in we don't see them physically throwing Millard out of his grave, uh, but we do see them all jumping in there fighting over the gold. This actually led to a lawsuit by Paramount, the, the makers of Paint Your Wagon, uh, because they found that the opening scene was being lifted from their movie. This was ultimately settled out of court, and obviously MGM and United Artists were allowed to use it for their opening. But anybody that's seen Paint Your Wagon, you can see that this is very, very, very similar. Uh, interesting that both movies were around the same time. So I'm not sure the legitimacy of MGM's claim to not have lifted this, but obviously being settled out of court, they, they made Paramount at least happy enough to make it go away. We see a man sitting on a donkey who's visibly different from the one that was playing the accordion. And he's riding quickly into town to tell the news of the gold find, but he's quickly passed by the pups uh, whose job, as we said earlier, is to be the bearer of news of events. And one thing I wonder as I see this is the man is riding into the tent town. So where we saw the shanties and the pop tents earlier. 
to announce the gold find, but I'm not entirely sure who he's yelling it to because we're led to believe that the entire town is in the funeral procession. Uh, there's a good eight or 10 people present there. So I'm not sure who stayed behind uh, and why they did. What, what did Miller do to them in the two days that he was there that led them to say, I'm not attending his funeral and to stay in town. So he's making the announcement that there's gold, but again, I'm not entirely sure who exactly he's making that announcement to. We then hear the intro music. It has a traditional orchestral sound to it with the twang of a mouth harp. And to me, whenever I hear a mouth harp um, or a jaw harp or a horribly racist term that I'm not going to use, it's always a sign of comedy. It always makes me think of things like that. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard one or saw one being played. I was growing up in the 80s and there was a show called Sharon Lois and Bram's The Elephant Show. And on that show, they would have skits and bits in a concert uh, similar to uh, like the, the Weebles and, and other uh, things that, that came afterwards. But Sharon Lois and Bram, they would have a concert and one of the bits that they would cut to would be this other bearded gentleman, a real kind of mountain man-y looking guy and guy. And he would be kind of like Mr. Wizard showing the kid, instead of science, he'd be showing the kids a musical instrument or how to play it or how to create your own musical instrument out of some string and a pencil and a, a paper plate. And I remember him... I, I distinctly have the memory of him showing a kid a mouth harp and the twang noises that it made. It was super cool to see. But yeah, I always equate the mouth harp to a, a sign of comedy for whatever reason. Just whenever I think of it in movies, it's usually following a, a beat of, of a comedic line. And I wonder if it is technically the Western equivalent of a slide whistle. So instead of see, hearing the slide whistle movement, if you're watching a Western or something from Australia, uh, the, the, the bouncy mouth harp tends to be the equivalent of that. But as the music plays, uh, let's take a moment to get to know the man behind the music in a segment called Remember the Name. It's about all I'm going to do the rest of my life is go around remembering your name. And welcome to Remember the Name, the segment where we take a bit of a deeper dive looking at some of our characters, our key players, our movers and shakers in regards to the movie Support Your Local Sheriff. Today we're going to we're going to take a look at Mr. Jeff Alexander, the composer on the film. Born July 2nd, 1910. We lost him December 23rd, 1989. He's known for quite a few different movies. He was the composer, obviously, on this movie. He started his career in the early 50s. Known for several westerns and disaster movies. Few episodes of Wagon Train, Have Gun, Will Travel, TV series The Lieutenant, The Twilight Zone, Rounders, Lost in Space, My Three Sons, which leads him into Support Your Local Sheriff in 1969. He did do one episode of one of my favorite shows, Columbo, uh, and this time it was The Forgotten Lady, the one with Janet Leigh, who is, kills her husband, who is not supportive of her returning to her dance career ultimately spoiler alert uh, she is going to die of a, a brain situation like an aneurysm that uh, causes her to not even remember being the murderer of her husband very powerful episode one that is 
filled with different music. Uh, the character is a, a dancer of the Gene Kelly uh, era. And so an episode that, if he's the one that was the composer for that episode, uh, really got to stretch his wings. It's a very, a very musical episode. So uh, hats off to that one. Leading up to Support Your Local Sheriff, he scored several Elvis Presley movies, including Jailhouse Rock in 1957, Kid Galahad in 62, Double Trouble in 67, Clam Bake in 67, and Speedway in 68. Uh, he did scores for over 30 films, including The Tender Trap, Ransom, Wings of Eagles, Party Girl, Ask Any Girl, All the Fine Young Cannibals, interesting, The George Raft Story, Day of the Evil Gun, uh, and Dirty Dingus McGee, after Support Your Local Sheriff. Uh, he also did so, quite a few television credits, as we mentioned. I find it interesting that he's not one of the core group that returns for Support Your Local Gunfighter. Uh, cinematographer, director, writer, most of the cast all returned, but different people were used for the music. So I don't know if it was an availability issue, if there was some falling out between them. That might be an interesting story. Uh, but yeah, he did not return for the, the quote-unquote sequel, but uh, he is definitely up front and... and the music is very noticeable, very memorable in this movie. So hats off, and this has been Remember the Name. You tell him I remember his name. And welcome back. Uh, as we hear the music, we begin to see our opening credits. James Garner, Joan Hackett, Walter Brennan, followed by Cherokee Productions, which was the production company of James Garner. They were looking to make a movie, as we said earlier, to keep the actors and cast and crew working. So they came up with this movie uh, sitting around the office. James Garner and his crew were looking to come up with an idea. And when Mr. Garner left the office to go downstairs and, and leave for a little bit, he saw the bumper stickers and signs of support your local police. And he said he immediately ran back up and popped his head in the door and says, I've got the idea. And this all comes from Mr. Garner's uh, biography. Definitely check that out if, you, if you're a fan of James Garner or just movies and Hollywood of that time frame. Definitely a great read. But we get, again, the music will swell. And we start to see teams of horses, buggies, covered wagons, all heading towards that gold strike. Two competing wagons roll up on each other and they start beating each other with their buggy whips. And I had to think that the stunt work on some of these things has to be difficult. You know, this would probably be something done in CGI nowadays. But as you're looking at it, it's uh, in 1969, it's right there up on screen. There are no computers. There's no graphics. It's literally two people riding horse-drawn wagons to a, 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 a foot apart from each other side by side. And the people that are driving the wagons are busy acting and beating at each other with buggy whips. So definitely a high level of danger in regards to that. We'll see a couple more stunts throughout the movie that are what I would think had to be very harrowing and very dangerous. So to be a stuntman during that time frame had to be a very harrowing experience uh, with that high risk of danger. I admittedly have never been around horses, but to have two sets of them so close together on that uneven terrain, because keep in mind, this isn't in a studio. They're they're out in the West. Uh, and if anybody's ever been out here, it's not exactly flat earth. 
Uh, but they're they're on an even terrain and they're trying to capture the action of these drivers and that just had to be dangerous. I mean, they pull apart and come together several times and you can see the lead horses at one point actually bump into each other. So just put that in perspective. Be you know be thankful when you're watching a movie for the stunt people and the the risks that they put to their lives and their 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 health just to entertain us. Uh, we then see others running around on foot, running toward the town, and I'm left to wonder how far away these people are coming from. You know, we're in the middle of Colorado during the 1860s. There's not exactly a lot of towns and such there. That's why where the gold strike happened, it was a shanty town. Did these people have enough of a head start from the people in the wagons? You know, are they arriving days later from the wagons uh, just because they were running instead of had the proper equipment? And otherwise, just how long are these runners going to go and how much gold is there going to be left by the time that they get there? You only see one of them actually carrying what appears to be a satchel or any type of uh, equipment. There's another carrying a pickaxe, but the rest of them are completely packless. So that can't be good. We do see one person pulling behind him a pack dog carrying supplies. So at least he has something to carry. At least he has some equipment to work with. And push comes to shove. I hate to say it, but you know he has some, some food potentially uh, if that comes to it. We then see the seemingly endless group of wagons and seeing them move and lurch. It, it gives me some very painful memories. So those that don't know me, I'm a, me and my family, we are transplants from uh, Ohio out here to Arizona. And between our move out here and the years that my wife and I drove to and from cross country for national bowling tournaments, I can tell you that it kills your back and legs to drive in a vehicle for 30 plus hours. You know, we never really stopped uh, except for gas and food. We always just, you know, kind of put our heads down and, and just plowed right through the drive to get it done. So that's in a van or a car with tires, shocks, suspension, some type of comfort in the, the seating. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to go over all the bumps and hills that that terrain has without any type of paved roads and just bouncing up and down in those wagons. Going on walks out here on some of these trails, it hurts my legs uh, just walking on some of this, this rocky, hard earth, sand, desert terrain. So I cannot imagine being able to do that for days or even weeks on end in a wagon. And that's without even imagining what it would be like to go through it speeding like these guys are. So so a leisurely pace, maybe, but these guys are huffing it. They're heading out to the, the gold strike as fast as they possibly can. And I would break wheels all the time in Oregon Trail, the game. So I can't even fathom what it was like in real life. Props to the pioneers. We go from the clicking of spoons sound into another swell of music and a harmonica kicking in as we fade into what is now the town of Calendar, Colorado. Once the shantytown previously, we see that it has proper buildings lining a muddy street and traffic is moving in and out, often with riders angry at the clouds, firing away. Uh, I'm left to wonder how much time has passed since the funeral. We find out later that the jail was built a month ago and enough time has passed 
as again, as we find out later, for several other sheriffs to come and go, but there's nothing definitive on the time passage here. And whoop, whoop, we have a trope alert. Westerns have many, many stereotypical situations. They have many tropes that they run into. And this is one of which that I'll point out. Uh, we have the rowdy, unruly Western town that's in need of a savior. So keep an eye on that. Uh, as you can see through the crowd, there's a bunch of rowdy mischief going on. Uh, there's people shooting guns and whooping and hollering and riding in the town. Keep an eye on that as that is a, a Western trope of many, many movies. We see passersby hurrying on the sides of the street, uh, out of the way of the wagons and shooters trying to pass. But at 5.02, if you're watching the same edition that I am, uh, there's one guy holding a jacket over his shoulder. He's in the bottom left side corner. Uh, he's either too stubborn to move or he's mesmerized by the sights of Madame Moore's house, which who could blame him? And he has to carefully weave in and out of the horses passing him by. And he actually looks to only begin his trek out on the street once the horses show up. So I don't know. Maybe he had lost all his money. Maybe the gold strike went bust for him. Maybe he was just trying to hope to get ran over. I don't know. Um, but if you keep an eye out for him, you'll see that he definitely is, is a little bit of danger trying to cross that road. We pan over to the aforementioned Madame Moore's house. And we see for the first time that the balcony patron, whose only purpose in life, it appears, is to shoo someone in the street to his right. We see him just keep waving his arm over and over. Keep an eye anytime Adam Moore's house is on screen. You're probably going to see that guy doing exactly that. Uh, we then pan over to see the mayor and the mining representatives and the two, or excuse me, the mining representative and the two other town founders coming out of a meeting and beginning to argue about how the town has gone to hell in a handbasket. There's a shot of the town street panning over to mayor and the council starting talking from the first scene. Uh, if you look, there's a guy apparently doing jumping jacks. So it's interesting to see extras in movies because apparently it, quite often an extra is just given a task to do to look busy on the on the screen you're not supposed to be noticeable and particularly in this movie if you take take your eyes off of the the plot and, and the story if you're just watching this for the thousandth time like i am you start to notice things like people just repeating things in the background so they'll just be keep they'll just keep doing the same action over and over again and this one really stood out that was interesting like i'm not sure what direction he was given but that man is just standing in the middle of a western street in 1869 doing jumping jacks so while the town council and the mayor are arguing uh, we find out that harry morgan is the mayor and we also find out that it must be a tradition in this town for important key members of the society to be elected by default as the mayor reminds the mine owner rep that the only reason any of them have their titles is because no one else wanted them. And I can relate to this. Uh, it's a proud, proud tradition in bowling to have your league meetings. And when you are electing your officials, your president of the league, your secretary of the league, whatever it may be, that whoever is not, who do, whoever did not take the time to show up to the meeting is probably going to get nominated and elected. So always show up, folks. That's the tip of the trade. Our town council continues the exposition dump to get our movie started. And we now know that the town has grown too fast 
and it's lacking any type of law and order. We know that there's a problem with everyone having to pay up to a group that we only know now as the Danbys. And 30 years ahead of the Lord of the Rings movies, we get a great hand-drawn map to show us where the problem lies and where we are geographically. I love the fact that they're actually using props to help explain the exposition. Uh, too often we just get a verbal diarrhea from a character and it it's kind of clunky in the movie. But I think something like this works really well. We are introduced to one of the Danbys riding through who surprisingly a member of the town council doesn't know by name. He has to ask which one is that. And if the Danbys are so prominent in the area and they're taking half of everyone's money, you'd think that one of the town's founders would know them by sight. Harry Morgan identifies this Danby as Joe and states the fact that out of the father and the three brothers, he's the second toughest. And I'm curious, who is the toughest? Is it the dad that we would presume, since as we see later, the, the other brothers are kind of cowered by him? But is it also one of the other brothers who are bigger than most people in the movie? Uh, we'll see the rest of them shortly in the movie, so you be the judge. Uh, definitely hit us up in the comments on who you think the strongest Danby is. We end the scene with the council expressing their woes and their need for a sheriff that won't run away the first time they're shot at. Will the town get such a sheriff? Well, we'll find out. We will see when we return to Chapter 2, Self-Defense. Until then, I appreciate you stopping in, having a listen, uh, watching the movie along with us. I hope that you are. Again, as of this recording, it's free on Pluto TV. It's free on what at the beginning of this podcast was known as IMDb TV, uh, has recently been rebranded Freebie or Free TV or something like that. Uh, not to date this podcast, but uh, it is available there as well. Please definitely check it out. And while you're checking things out, please take the time to find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram. We're both listed as support your local podcast. Uh, we are also obviously located at supportyourlocalpodcast.com. We can be found on any of your podcatchers. So Apple, Google, Overcast, uh, you name it, Anchor, you name it. We are, we are there at support your local podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, want to give us some feedback, please, please, please reach out to us at supyourlocalpodcast at gmail. That's S-U-P-P, yourlocalpodcast at gmail.com. And always, please rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us at. That greatly helps us in moving up the rankings, getting more discovered, and being able to provide more content for you. Uh, if you have not subscribed to us on YouTube and followed us on our social medias, please do so. That is where you'll find all of our updates, all the information, any bonus content that we release, and just in general, uh, being able to talk to the audience. Uh, I love interacting. I love talking movies, wrestling, bowling, you name it. We will have a conversation about it. So definitely throw in a comment, throw in a like. Uh, but until then, I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. And as always, support your local podcast. He stuck his finger in the end of your what?